welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thank you, Bill. It is so good to be with all of you today. The last time I was at Emmaus Road, uh, we were at the different theater, and there was two morning services, and I think I even had the fun of sitting in with Peter Burton and the band, and of course, he and his wife have just had uh, their baby. Yes. But it, it does feel like family, and, he, and I was with the um, congregation at Woking this morning. It was delightful to meet Josh and Emma and to see all of the good work there. But thank God for the wonderful work that is multiplying here at Emmaus Road. Isn't that amazing? Your pastor, Pete Gregg, Pete and Sammy, right here. It's good to see you, Sammy. Pete is over in our neck of the woods, so he spoke at one of our congregations Friday night, and this Sunday morning, in a few more hours, he'll be preaching at New Life Downtown, the congregation at New Life uh, that I lead, and so it's just kind of fun. This is our little transatlantic pulpit swap, you know. I don't know that it'll catch on, but maybe they'll make a TV show of it. So uh, it's great to be with all of you. Can I just say just a little bit about um, my story, just so we can get to know one another a little better? I, I regret that we can't, that I uh, won't get to return the favor and have you share all of your stories, but since I have the microphone, I'll just be the one sharing a bit about mine. I, I grew up in Malaysia, and normally when I'm speaking to Americans, I have to say where that is a bit more geographically, but you, you know, you Brits, you understand this very well. And uh, my, my, mom, my mom was raised Anglican, my dad was a Hindu, they met at the University of Singapore, and when they began dating, my mom said, look, I'm not marrying a Hindu, and so my dad converted. We don't recommend this strategy to our young people, but sometimes it works as an effective evangelism uh, <laughs> prospect. And so a couple years into their marriage, the, the Lord really got a hold of them. They had what they would describe as a born-again experience, and then shortly after that, they were introduced to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, and just on and on, things began to grow and flourish in their walk with the Lord. And so when I was 10 years old, my parents felt like the Lord was leading them to go to a Bible college in America, in Portland, Oregon, on the northwest uh, coast. And so my sister was 13, I was 10, and we moved from Malaysia to America. We lived there for three years, three very formative years of my life. So I grew up speaking English, but it was those in those years that I learned to speak American. And, uh, and then we moved back to Malaysia for four years, and I came back on my own to go to college. I went to a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Oral Roberts University. And uh, my third year of university, I met a girl. She was in her first year and when we first met, we met through some mutual friends, uh, you know, she looked at me and probably thought I was this sweet, nerdy foreign student guy, you know, I had gold-rimmed glasses and Argyle sweaters when Argyle w weren't cool again yet. And she had these blonde highlights and blue eyes, and I thought, I mean, what did I know? I was from Malaysia, I was like, she's probably a cheerleader from California, you know. And then we got to know one another. I found out she was really a farm girl from Iowa in the Midwest, and she found out that I was really a sweet, nerdy foreign student guy. And somehow the Lord works miracles. And this August, we will be celebrating 17 years of being married, which is great. 
So we have four children. Uh, Sophia and Nora are our oldest, 13 and 11. They're sitting right there. Give a little wave, girls. Okay, they're embarrassed. There we go. And then our younger two are in the kids' uh, ministry stuff. Jonas is eight and Jane is six. So we are just thrilled to be with all of you here today. Um, I was asked to join in on the series that began a couple weeks ago on the Bible. And so I heard a little bit of Lucy's talk about the scriptures and about the, the images that help us understand the Bible. And I thought this morning, before we, we really begin in earnest about um, talking about how to read this book and how to uh, study this book and how to understand this book, I thought we should really begin with the first question of what kind of book is this? I mean, what kind of book is this? And, and we know the Bible is a collection of many different books, but even to receive it as Scripture, what do we mean when we say that? Because sometimes I think we, we don't even stop to ask ourselves that question, and so we approach it with all of these expectations in mind without, without even recognizing that we're doing that. And one of the things we might do is to, is to treat this like a textbook. And so this is primarily a book of information, and maybe it's information about history or geography or science. And so there are people that will say, oh, I don't need to read any other book. The Bible is everything I need to know for everything. And so this is my science book, and this is my, you know. And, and then we have the whole issues that arise because of that debate about inerrancy. Okay, what do we mean when we say inerrancy? Are there errors? Are there not? What if science has a different account? than this and how are we meant to take this and so is it quite a textbook I would say no it's not and if we expect it if we treat it if we come to it like a textbook for all the information that we need we're missing what the scriptures really are and maybe another approach that we take is to treat it a little bit like a cookbook this is all of our formulas and recipes. You know, if you just add a sprinkle of faith and a dash of love and just a little smidge of courage, maybe then voila, out will come the blessed life. You know, this is how you do it. these three easy steps. And you realize when you read the Bible that it doesn't quite work like that. You, you, you can even read the Proverbs, which seem to be the most direct about, you know, advice about life. Even in the Proverbs, there are side-by-side -side Proverbs that conflict. One that says, don't rebuke a fool in his folly lest he hate you. And the other one says, rebuke a fool lest he persists in his folly. And you're sitting there saying, I don't know which to do. And there's so many fools. <laughs> And so we don't know, which formula do I follow? And, and, then, and then maybe a third approach is to treat it a bit like a coffee table book. Now, I might be showing my age here because do we really even use coffee table books anymore? Maybe I should have said to treat this like a Pinterest board or a collection of Instagram memes that aren't these just wonderful, inspirational phrases that we can just pull out. Well, many are. But there's a whole lot more in this book of uh, phrases that are not very Instagrammable. That if you were to create memes of them, you say, well, I'm not sure that that's very inspiring. <laughs> and so if we expect to approach this like a book of inspiration, we'll be disappointed. Maybe the last um, approach that we tend to use is to treat it like a rule book. Okay, this is God's collection of rules, and this is how we're supposed to live. And so... So then we get, we get really, you know, weighed down in this. And then people who aren't Christians will say to us, well, if that's the case, you guys are very erratic about which rules you follow and which ones you don't. Because I saw you eating bacon. You know, 
And then other people say, well, there are all these rules in there, but you see, God was like that. Early on, he was a little bit fussy, sort of uptight. He kind of mellowed out in his old age, and by the time you get to the end, it's all grace. <laughs> you say, well, well, that can't be right. That's not right. That can't be true. There was a band years ago in, in the States who had a song um, based on the acronym B-I-B-L-E, and it, it said, it's called Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And it's odd for a number of reasons, not least of which is because it makes us sound like we're spacemen or E.T. or something, you know, going home before leaving Earth, you know. And that's not the picture of Christian hope, speaking of Christians, that we'll all just evacuate out of here. So what is this book? I think the thing that we are meant to sort of see is that as Christians, the Bible, we call the Bible God's Word. It's God's Word to us. It's God speaking to us. And when you begin to read early on in the stories, what you discover is God means for us to be in relationship with him. He wants us to know him. Now think about this for, with your friendships, maybe even, even some of you who are in dating relationships or those of you that are married. I suspect that when you started to get to know one another, you didn't begin by arriving at your first sort of coffee chat and, and, and say, okay, um, it's nice to meet you. I'm Glenn. Um, Here's a piece of paper of my personality attributes. This is my profile. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. Most people and most of us get to know others by telling stories. So, well, tell me a story about how you grew up. Tell me about your family. Tell me about um, your, what you do for a living. Tell me about your work. Tell me about your hometown. Tell me about the... And, and as we narrate stories, we actually get to know one another. Part of how we build relationship is by storytelling, is revealing bits of ourselves through story, not through lists and bullet points and, and abstract concepts, right? So I think we do this because we're made in the image of God. And God himself, when he chooses to self-disclose, begins by telling a story. God himself, when he chooses to reveal himself, how else would finite creatures know the creator unless God chooses to self-reveal, right? And when God chooses to self-reveal, to, to, uh, to let us know him, he begins with a story in the beginning. I mean, can you imagine God saying, I would like for us to get to know one another. Pull up a chair. Let me tell you a story. In the beginning, this is why I made the world. This is why I made the heavens and the earth. This is what I thought when I made it. I stepped back and I said, oh, it is good. And this is what it feels like to see your creation begin to unravel in sin and rebellion. This is what it looks like to watch the world that you ordered together fall into disorder and pull apart at the seams. And then this is what it's like to call a family, a man named Abraham and his family, and to say, you guys will be the carriers of the cure to this world that is infected with sin and rebellion. And this is what it feels like to watch that family themselves be unfaithful. This is what it feels like. So when you read... These long stories in the Old Testament and these stories about idols and exile and, and, and the good kings and bad kings. You're reading a story that is meant to help you see and feel the pain. Now, I have to be honest with you. I, I don't love fiction. 
When I read, I read nonfiction. I am the guy that would prefer that we introduced ourselves with lists of attributes. No, not really. But I'm not a fiction guy. My wife is a fiction guy. She loves stories, and so she's tried to help me, you know, kind of adjust a little bit. But what I've noticed about trying to read great literature and what we call these great stories is most of these great stories make you work for it a little bit. They kind of make you, in fact, there's a whole lot of nothing that happens at long chunks of the story. Several years ago, I made myself read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. I'm just not that guy, but I made myself do it. And there's this whole middle section about Levin and the farm, and you're just like, I don't care about your fields. Right? But in the end, it all sort of comes to play. It all kind of has a point. And the Old Testament is a bit like that. First, you, you, you read some of these stories and you think, I don't care about all these tribes and these peoples. Why does it matter? And one of, the, one of the things you begin to catch on with the big story is that actually what the Old Testament is trying to do is it's trying to lead us to the edge of the cliff. It's trying to show us that the people who were carriers of the cure were themselves infected with the disease. And you, you see the story of Israel, and there's three main institutions, if we can call them that, in Israel, of, of the king and of the prophet and of the priest. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, it's a gruesome story of the priests trying to bring about justice, but doing it in a way that actually makes more of a mess. And then you think, oh, well, the priesthood, there goes that. Then you say, well, kings, we're going to have kings. So then there's a story of kings next. And then you see the kings uh, having four, you know, concubines and adulterous affairs and leading the nation to worship other gods. And you're thinking, the kings are a mess. So, well, the prophets, the prophets are the ones who always challenge the kings. The prophets will save the day. And then one of the last prophets you meet is a guy named Jonah who's such a bad prophet that when God calls him, he runs the opposite way. And then when he arrives and he delivers the message and the people repent, you would think a prophet's dream. Jonah says, God, come on. This is the worst prophet ever. And you're meant to sort of get to the edge of the Old Testament and to say, how, what, how, how is this going to resolve? I mean, this is, if you're a Star Wars fan, this is like the end of Empire Strikes Back. Han is frozen. Luke is not a Jedi. What's going to happen, Right? And all of a sudden, you, you, you realize that there's, if you wait for it, if you work for it, there's a grand story that is unfolding. And so I want to say three things to us this morning about how that shapes the way we read this book, to see it as this grand story of God revealing himself to us and showing us what it's like to be his people. Number one, we need to enter the story. We need to enter the story. Every time you read the Bible, try to find your way into it. Take your time with it. Don't just look for a, a catchy phrase or two, but, but ask yourself. And so there's a couple of questions you could ask yourself, okay? One, as you're trying to enter the story, you could ask yourself, what is going on here? <laughs> What's actually going on? And so what that might mean is to read longer sections of Scripture, if you're reading one of the letters in the New Testament, it might be good the first time through it. Just read it all the way in one sitting because none of us receives an email or a letter and just reads the first sentence and set it down, right? None of us. We don't get a card from grandma and says, Dear Holly, I hope you're well. Oh, man, let me think about that. Mm. 
I mean, I, I listened to a preacher one time when I was younger who said, he, he opened up to 3 John 2, and, and it says, I hope you uh, are well and that you prosper even as your soul prospers. And he'd stopped, and his whole sermon was about prosperity. He says, it's God's will for you to prosper because 3 John verse 2 says, I hope you prosper. I thought, Isn't that just a greeting? Like, hope all's well, man, you know? And, and so some of, the, some, of the, 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 some of these errors can be avoided. If we just take the time to say, what's going on? And then a second question, what did it mean for them? Like for them, what's actually happening here for them? And then thirdly, what does it mean for you? What is going on? What did it mean for them? And then what does it mean for us? But you kind of have to do this work. Gordon Fee, he's this uh, uh, New Testament scholar. He said, the Bible has eternal relevance, but historical particularity. Eternal relevance, but historical particularity. In other words, it, it arrived, these words arrived first to an original group of people. And, and we're removed from these people by 2,000 years or more. We're removed from these people by language, by culture, by geography. And so there's so many uh, things that, that, that kind of distance us from this that we have to just stop in order to enter the story to say, what's going on? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Okay, second thing is we need to let the story enter us. We need to take the time to let the story actually get inside of us. I love this. There's a, there's a passage in Ezekiel 3 where Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, has this vision of an angel. And, and he says, the voice said to me, human one, eat this thing. It's a scroll. Eat this thing that you found. Eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. And it's this metaphor here of the word of God coming into him. And, and he says, and Ezekiel says, so I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. And he said to me, human Human one, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. And so I ate it, and in my mouth it became as sweet as honey. And then you fast forward in the book of Revelation, John has this very similar kind of vision where an angel tells him, Revelation 10, chapter 10, then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me and said, go, take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who sits on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and I told him to give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make you sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. And so I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but then I swallowed it, and it made my stomach churn. Isn't that great? I mean, it's sort of like eating McDonald's after midnight, right? You're like, seemed like a good idea at the time. And you're like, Whoa. But it says to us that we're not just trying to enter the story we're trying to let the story enter us. And one of the signs that the story of God is, is getting inside you is that it messes with you. It's supposed to mess with you. If you read everything in the Bible and all it does is confirm what you already think about life and morality and, and business and work, you think, well, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, it's right there. That's exactly what I already think. You might be cautious of that. <laughs> You might say, well, I, I don't know. Maybe this is challenging something. It's supposed to confront us. It's supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to say, I, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to work. Years ago when Holly and I were working with our, our college ministry at our church, there was this young couple that we met, and we were... Uh, you know, they were new to the faith, and so we were, she was meeting with uh, the gal, and I was meeting with this guy, and they weren't married yet, they were dating, but, but, and, and, but they didn't know anything about how they were supposed to live and, and all this stuff, and so uh, one day, the guy says to me over coffee, he says, 
hey, um, we, um, we, we've been sleeping together, but, but we asked God, and he said, it's all right. I said, well, let's talk about that for a minute. You know. And they hadn't begun to read the Bible. They hadn't yet encountered the word of God confronting or challenging decisions that they would have wanted to make on their own. And so the story needs to enter us so that it can mess with us. But there's another reason the story needs to enter us. It's so that we understand our part to play in it. And very often we, we speak with people who are, are, who are anxious about a particular decision. Lord, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I take this job? Should I not take this job? And don't you always wish that you would have those burning bush moments? And sometimes God does do that, doesn't he? I mean, I, I, we can look back and look at these milestone moments and just say, boom, there it was. It was so clear we're supposed to do this and supposed to do that. But very often we're just sort of left and it feels like improvising. So we're saying, well, I'm, I, mean, I don't know, let's, let's do this now and let's roll with this. But actually, I think improvising is a good analogy, is a good picture of all of this. Have you ever seen a group of improv actors on a stage? Have you ever been, you know, I don't know, in this theater or somewhere else, you know, uh, we've been to a couple. Of, it's just, it's amazing talent to see these actors where you give them a word or a scene and then they just go. And, and sometimes it's hilarious. Most of the time it works. Occasionally it's even funnier when it doesn't work, you know, and they're struggling, but they're just trying to make the scene happen. N.T. Wright has this uh, description of what it might be like to live as followers of Jesus in our age. He says, imagine discovering an, un, an incomplete Shakespearean play. A few days ago, our family was at Stratford-upon-Avon. We saw the house where old Bill himself was born, you know. And I imagine if they dug up in some attic somewhere and said, we found an unfinished Shakespeare play. There's four acts, but the fifth act is missing and they say, but we were determined to put this production on. We're going to do it. So, well, how are you going to do it? So, oh, and they, they decide that the thing to do is to call together the best, most famous Shakespearean actors around. And you get these people, and these are people who've read every play, who've studied it, who've acted in it. They, they know kind of in their bones what a character would do, right? And N.C. Wright says, that's a little bit like what this is like for us. We study this not just so we can have academic knowledge of it, but so that we know how to take our place on the stage, so that we know how to fill our part of the story. And so you, you, you think about David, and you think about Moses, and you think about Elijah, and you think about Paul and Peter and Mary, and you think, okay, okay, I, I get a sense of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so here we are. It's your moment on the stage and this is the thing that maybe is, is crazy about how God works, but God has decided that everybody gets time on the stage. That if you belong to Jesus, you particularly have a part to play in this story, and you're thinking, well, well what am I supposed to do? And so that's why he says, take this in you. Eat this book. Let this get inside you. Let it mess with you. So that when, you, when it's your turn to improvise, you'll kind of know your instincts will be right. Your, your reactions will be right. Because without it, our instincts will probably be wrong. Yeah? But with it, all of a sudden, when I was talking to a group of young people recently, and, and they, you know, they were asking all these questions about how do I know God's will for this or this or this or this. And I said, I mean, it's a little bit corny, but I said, there's no script, but there is a scripture. 
We don't have this script where it's like, oh, no, God, did I do the wrong thing? No, we have a God who is so strong and so mighty, he's able to roll with things that are unexpected to us. Well, I didn't see the downturn in the business happening, and I didn't see the unexpected illness, and I didn't see the marriage ending. I didn't see this. I didn't, what do I do now, God? And when you read the scriptures, you realize people have been here before. This isn't a book written by people who had everything work out their way. This isn't a book written by people who were superpowers, who never had bad things. This is written by a tiny group of people in a tiny strip of land that they kept being kicked around by life, a.k.a. the Babylonians, Egyptians, Assyrians, found themselves in the middle of all kinds of conflict, dragged around as slaves, had to be released from exile after decades. So when you read prayers that say, God is our refuge and our very present help in trouble, you're not reading the kind of you know, positivity thinking of people who, who never had troubles. You're reading the prayers and songs of a resilient people, of a people who said the, the storyline has gone off script, but God is still on the stage. God is still with us. And so here we are, we, we're in act five or whatever act we are in the story. There's not a script, but there's a scripture that we've taken into us. We've let the story enter into us. And more than that, the very author of this book lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, breathes in us, guides us, nudges us into this. And so we enter the story, we let the story enter us. And thirdly, finally, we need to see Christ as the center of the story to see Jesus as the hero. John 5, Jesus is rebuking the religious teachers of his own day, and this is a scathing warning that reverberates even for us. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Can I say something that maybe we sometimes miss as Christians is we have our noses so buried in the pages of this thing and we know every little detail about this and that and Macedonia and Corinth and Ephesus and blah, 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 blah. And we miss Jesus. And we miss Jesus. And the whole point of the book is not to memorize it for information or just blindly follow it for commandments and rules. The whole point of this narrative is to be introduced to the tri-personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like that person that you're getting to know, and they're telling you stories about their life and their family and their upbringing and all of this stuff, and you say, and you're taking notes on all of it. <laughs> you're like, oh, write this down, write this down, write this down. And then you miss the person. Like, well, but, but, but she's right there. He's right there. L look into their eyes for a moment. And the whole point of reading the scriptures is to find the face of Jesus, isn't it? It's to find the face of Jesus. There's a beautiful story from which the name of your own church is derived in Luke 24. Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he says in verse 25... Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses 
and going through all the prophets. And then later on, these disciples say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked? The idea of opening the scriptures and allowing them to speak. Some people call this practice Lectio Divina, where you just read a passage over and over again, and you, lose your, you find yourself in the story, and you let the story get into you, and then you find Jesus in it. And all of a sudden, you realize, David and Goliath, that's, kind, that, that, that's encouraging about us facing giants, but the greater news of it all was Jesus was our representative, the true son of David, who faced down the greatest giants you could ever face, and that in him you have victory. And all of a sudden, your hearts begin to burn, not because you've received a pep talk, not because you've, you've developed some go get em kind of inspiration or you've memorized some information. Your hearts burn because you've seen Jesus. You've seen the face of Christ in the pages of Scripture. And so my prayer for you this morning, whether you've been reading the Bible or whether you've been afraid to read the Bible or whether you've been hurt by others who've used the Bible as a weapon to bully you. My prayer for you this morning is that you would hear, you would receive God's self-revelation as God's invitation to himself. Come to me. I have something to show you. Would you bow your heads this morning as we pray? Maybe as the worship team comes and I just had a sense this morning as I was praying for the services today that so many of us are, we know we should, <laughs> but we find it hard. And to just sort of hear the invitation of a gentle Savior this morning, to say, I, I know, you don't have to solve all the riddles. You don't have to understand every line. You don't have to become an expert. The Bible is not the story for professionals and experts. The Bible is God's word to everyone. And that's you. So maybe you, you, you have, you know, sort of experienced people kind of bruising you with the Bible and throwing the book at you, so to speak. And God wants for you to hear his gentle invitation today. So maybe where you are, if you just open up your hands like this, sort of a posture of openness and receptivity and listening and God who called light out of darkness, the God who spoke and formed order out of chaos, the God who called Adam out of hiding, Abraham out of his father's house, the God who called Israel out of Egypt, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who called us out of sin and death and fear is speaking again. He's speaking again. 
You're meant to be on the stage. You're meant to take your place in this story. Don't just read this about things that have happened before. Read this as a story that continues in and through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, let it be. Awaken now by your Spirit our hearts. Awaken us. Breathe on us. Lord, where there are just embers of a flame, would you breathe on it and let it come alive again. Let our hearts burn within us again. Kindle in us not simply a love for your word, but a love for you, Jesus. Speak to us so that we would see you, hear you, know you, become like you, reveal you in the world. Send us out as emissaries continuing the mission of God in the world. Thank you for my friends, Lord. May your blessing rest on us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.